Welcome to the Activist Insight podcast, Beyond the Boardroom, a supplement to our monthly podcast which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. Here we discuss shareholder activism with some of the industry's top experts. I'm Kieran Paul, your host, and my guest today is Ben Claremont, a principal, portfolio manager and research analyst at Cove Street Capital. Los Angeles-based Cove Street was founded in 2011 and employs a multi-year time frame in crafting concentrated portfolios of value-oriented stocks. The firm is also a constructive, behind-the-scenes suggestivist investor whose engagements with company management teams rarely generate headlines. So, Ben, welcome to the show. Looking forward to the conversation. Perhaps you could start by talking about your investment philosophy in so-called normal times. Uh, what kind of businesses are you looking to invest in? Uh, I'm not sure what normal times are anymore, but uh, it goes back to our, our general philosophy about investing. And so we're value investors. I mean, what does that mean? So that means we are looking for securities that are trading at a discount to intrinsic value. We run concentrated portfolios. So if we find said securities, we're going to hold them for three to five years at the very minimum and hopefully forever, right? We'd love to find a compounder that will get more valuable every day. From a tax efficient perspective, you just hold as long as you can. And so I guess the way we look at value is we bifurcate it between what we call it a Buffett and Graham paradigm. Buffett, obviously, in reference to Warren Buffett and Graham in reference to his mentor, Ben Graham. Those two individuals, uh, I guess, as Buffett evolved from his teaching with from Ben Graham, ended up being kind of different investors. And so Ben Graham was looking for very cheap securities, things like that were so-called net nets businesses that were just so cheap, trading well under book value. It didn't really matter how good the business was or who the management was. It was just Ben Graham was looking to buy things that were trading at enormous discounts or intrinsic value. And eventually there'd be some mean reversion where he would make money. Buffett, on the other hand, started investing in better businesses with better management and you know, kind of caught the compounding bug and, and saw that when you're investing in mediocre businesses, like the original Berkshire Hathaway was a textile mill, it was a, it was a mediocre business. And he learned that it's better to invest in the Coca-Colas and American Expresses of the world. So getting to your question, we bifurcate the world between Buffett and Grams, and we code any security that we're looking at is either a Buffett or a Graham. And we have a one to four score that we code everything with. And with a one being a perfect Buffett, think a company with a large moat, getting more valuable every day. And I think that usually means there's good management as well. And on the other end of the spectrum is a, is a Graham, a pure Graham would be a four. We don't have many fours in our portfolio, if any, but think of a four being like an oil and gas company, you know, a levered oil and gas company that's trading at, you know, 40% of book value, you know, and, and so that's the spectrum. And so to some degree, we take what the market gives us in our small cap portfolio, which is run by our founder, is a mix of Buffett and Graham. And Jeff and I also, Jeff Ronchick and I, our founder, uh, we also co-manage our SMIG cap portfolio. That is more of a Buffett leaning portfolio. So I think ideally we would buy a concentrated portfolio of Buffett's and we would just sit and watch them compound. And in, in small cap, I think we take a little more liberties in finding really cheap securities that we think can mean revert. And in the small cap plus strategy, you know, we lean Buffett, but at times we'll dabble in businesses that people are perceiving as grams, but we believe to be actually Buffett's. And then there's just something obscuring it. And whether that's a capital allocation change or, you know, they, they divest a business and all of a sudden people start to realize it's a better business than they were thinking. And how do you feel about the moniker suggestivist? Does that describe your brand of activism, do you think? I think it does. I think that describes us pretty well. But let's take a step back. And I don't know if there's an official definition of suggestivist, but I'll give you what that means to us. So for us, and a suggestivist is an act 
active but not activist shareholder, someone who provides management with feedback and recommendations on subjects that are within the firm's circle of competence. And so some people are really good in operations and can help firms think about operations. That's not our role. We're not going to be starboard. We're not going to be uh, suggesting to you know Olive Garden that they put more salt in their pasta water. Like We don't think that <laughs> that's our core competence. But we do think we know a little bit about capital allocation and corporate governance. So if you think about the things that we in kind of behind the scenes talk to management about, it's almost always surrounding those two topics. And when I talk about corporate governance, that's whether that's board structure, management compensations included there, anything that you find in the proxy statement. And the capital allocation is what do you do with the capital? And I think this to some extent also includes the balance sheet. How do you think about structuring your balance sheet for the business? These are the subjects we are in constant dialogue with our management teams on. It's not a public conversation. I think we spend a lot of time writing respectful, thoughtful letters that we hope benefit all shareholders. And I can give you an example if it's helpful to understand like what that truly means. And so last year, our 2019 project was we identified that there were 10 companies within our small cap portfolio that had staggered boards. The staggered board is a thing of the past. I don't think staggered boards are good corporate governance. And it's not that we want companies to be subject to activism and to have the board thrown out. We just think that when you are up for election every year, you will be more receptive to shareholder recommendations. And you'll know that there's somebody watching you and then in theory could throw you off the board if, if you're not adding value for everybody. And that's for all your stakeholders. Um, and so we wrote letters to all 10 of these companies. Behind the scenes, there was nothing public about this. So the initial response we got from the companies was actually really positive. We got an audience with the board, we got an audience with the management teams. And we basically said, look, we don't need you to destagger today. We just want you to start the destaggering process so that over the next three years, there will not be a staggered board on this company. And we said, we think you're on the wrong side of history. And oh, by the way, if you look at the stats associated with votes on this matter, they're highly, highly skewed towards people voting for a destaggering. You know, as of the last count we had, eight out of 10 of the companies had agreed to destagger. Can I quantify exactly how much that you know, makes the company more valuable? No. Can I quantify exactly how much that helps all shareholders? Not necessarily. But since corporate governance is such an important part for, of our process, um, the way we evaluate companies, we think having our companies be on the right side of history in corporate governance, making sure that they are receptive to shareholders, making sure that they understand that they are being observed and you know there could be change if necessary, we think that's valuable for everybody. I'm curious about how a stock market panic affects value investors. During the sell-off in March in the recent earnings season, were you looking for reasons to hold on to your positions or an opportunity to start afresh? The funny thing about this is that value investors, and, and I have a lot of friends in the value community, were kind of waiting for this moment. People had identified that a lot of stocks were pretty richly valued, if not you know, fairly to richly valued, and it was hard to find good bargains. There was a little bit of a tick down in Q4 2018, but over the next ensuing year, it was very difficult. Um, and I think the S&P was up like 30% in 2019. So you wait for this moment and it happens. You start immediately with what you own. It's not like we have a, an emergency plan that we broke a glass and we knew exactly what to do. But you know, this is basically how it works at our firm is that the first thing you do is you look at what you own because what you don't own can't hurt you. And so since we are a firm that is focused on not losing money, we immediately went through the, the portfolio and asked ourselves a number of questions. One, how is this company impacted directly or indirectly by the virus or the associated shutdowns? And then secondly, how does a balance sheet look? 
does this company have the balance sheet and you know the ability to generate capital to survive through this? Companies have been impacted in very different ways. Healthcare companies, you know, seeing more demand for their products as a result of this. And then we have some travel companies that, and I think it goes without saying, are seeing fairly hard hit. So you look at these companies on a spectrum and you say, okay, so how, how impacted are they? What does the balance sheet look like? And you have to be willing to make, quote unquote, bad sales to upgrade your portfolio in the sense like if there's a business that was kind of on the gram side and you know it was cheap you weren't that excited about it but you know there wasn't a whole lot else you know that's the kind of a stock what would i would call the first out like what stock in your portfolio would be the first out and that would be a stock that even if it were down in an environment like we saw in march you might be willing to buy to sell it and buy something else that was kind of our next step was like okay identify what would be the first out sell some of those even if it's a bad sale even if you think that still cheap if there's better risk reward associated with another security move into that security. And especially if you can upgrade the quality of your portfolio, adding better businesses. And so that was kind of the next leg. And we did a fair amount of that in all of our strategies. I mean, you never can put capital to work as fast as you want just because, well, some people can, but we are diligent value investors. We can't turn around and say, hey, we've never really looked at this company. We're going to buy it in a week. That's just not our world. You know, we do months, if not years of research before we start owning something. Our first bias was do we want to add more to our existing positions? Any other cash after that was spent on companies for which we had done the work, knew them well, knew the management team, knew the intrinsic value, and then, you know, we're willing to step into. You know, a crisis is not the time to start working on a bunch of ideas that you've never looked at before. It's not about the devil you know, and you should lean towards that. I mean, I think that's a bias. You're never going to have access to management in a time like that. You're not going to be able to visit the company. You're not going to be able to visit their factories. You're going to be hard to find people to talk to on expert networks. You know, the things that you do, the diligence that you do that distinguishes you, you're not going to be able to do that. No, I think if you look at how our portfolios evolved, we became more concentrated in the stocks that we owned and we upgraded our portfolio in terms of adding some better businesses that had been never cheap enough over the, you know, over the last two years. And therefore, are there things now you'll be looking out for over the next couple of months to determine where stocks may be heading? So we're long-term investors. We're not macro investors. We know that we can't predict where stocks are going to go in the short run. And I think that's true, especially now, because there's so many external factors that are impacting stocks. You have the Fed pumping liquidity. You have a huge fiscal stimulus in the U.S. And then, of course, the virus itself and the associated lockdowns. All of these things are impacting stocks. And as you can see, with the vicious rally we've had, you know, the market is, is swinging between optimism and, and fear. And so I think what we don't want to get involved with is trying to figure out whether stocks are going to be down and, and we should wait and put some of our cash to work. What we can do is we can have a framework. And our framework revolves around a few different qualities. And first is patience, right? If you've done a lot of work on a company and you have a sense of its intrinsic value and the stock went from 20 to $5 and you would have been really happy buying it at 5 but your buy price is, is like 8 or 9 and the stock's 12 be patient and be disciplined. Don't chase things because you quote unquote missed it. And I say this to one of my younger colleagues all the time, you will miss any number of securities in your career. Like catching bottoms is impossible. There will be things you looked at and wish you had bought the rest of your career, but there are no call strikes in this game. And so you get to pass on as many things as you need to. And, and eventually when, in our case, when the combinations of businesses and value and people line up, because those are our three pillars, then we're willing to step in aggressively when we have conviction and only then. So that's the patience and there's discipline. And there's one other element that we added here when we're thinking about like, okay, everything's down. 
there's a lot of stocks that we had focused on and that we were kind of in position to forward on. What we did is we created a, a, a recovery scenario, a base case. In an environment where everything's down and it's painful and you can always make an, up a reason why things will continue to go down, you need to have some kind of consistency. So what we did is we said, let's say as our base case that 2022 is a recovery. So 2020 obviously is going to be down for every, just about everybody. 2021 is going to be a mediocre recovery. And let's just say it takes until 2022 to get back to 2019 numbers. That's just our base. And every company has a different nuance associated with that. Let's just use that framework and see what stocks are discounting. See what's still cheap based on that and see what's kind of expensive based on that. And that highlighted for us what we should be focused on. So that was a framework we were using. And, and it was a conservative framework, right? I mean, if, if we have a V-shaped recovery and 2021 looks like 2019, you know, we'll have ended up missing things. But that's okay with us, right? Because we want to be patient and disciplined. So, you know, to get to your specific question, you know, we're not trying to predict where the market's going. We're going to use that framework with the conservative recovery assumptions and we'll see what falls out. One feature of the last few months has been the number of poison pills implemented. How do you view those as an investor? And are there some defense tactics that you look on less kindly? Every situation is different. But in general, we would look upon poison pills unfavorably. I think the only situation where it really makes sense is if you have some net operating losses that you have to protect. There's these rules about shareholder-based changes, the section, I think it's section 382 rules that can make the NOL less usable if there's a certain change in the shareholder base. So for that specific situation, I think you can justify having some kind of shareholder rights plan. But in general, I would say these are just ways to entrench management. And we just had a co- one of our companies, and I'm not going to name the names, but I will say that it's a technology company that Starboard has filed a 13D on. But I wanted to read a couple lines from their press release about their rights plan. The wording of it is so infuriating as a, as a shareholder. I think it will get to exactly how we feel about these things. But let me just read this. The rights may cause substantial dilution to any person or group that attempts to acquire the company without the approval of the board. As a result, the overall effect of the rights agreement and the issuance of the rights may be to render more difficult or discourage a merger, tender, or exchange offer, other business combination involving the company that is not approved by the board. So what you're saying is that the board and management are going to be gatekeepers in a way that doesn't give shareholders a say. They're going to be able to dissuade potential acquisition through the rights offering without feeling the desire and need to put it up for a shareholder vote. Just the wording of that, if you're an asset owner, if you're a shareholder, that should be infuriating. Just that language would be suggestive to you that in general, these things are not shareholder friendly. And we would advise against most companies from you know, even thinking about undertaking something like this. Now, you don't run proxy contests at Cove Street, but you're often in stocks that are the maybe more hostile activist target. So do you find these campaigns to be helpful? And then do you tend to support the activist in these fights? I don't know what it is about our portfolio, but just recently, we've had a number of activists become involved in the stocks that we own in our small cap portfolios. Let me say this. We vote all of our own proxies. We read every proxy. 
proxy for us is literally the most important document that you're ever going to read from a company. It talks about capital allocation, it talks about corporate governance, it talks about compensation. And we are believers that the proxy statement is an indicator of exactly how a company is going to act in certain circumstances because you can see how people are incentivized. You know, we even have this little, um, I guess it's part of our process where every few years, a single person reads all the proxy statements that we get. And I know that sounds like an incredible amount of work, but what that does is allows each of us to read so many proxy statements that you really start to have a good sense of what's a good proxy and what's good compensation, what's good corporate governance and what is very poor corporate governance. You know, when there's an activist comes in, you know, we're going to read the proxies from both. We're going to look deeply into the merits of both arguments from each side. Um, We're going to actively engage with the activist and the company. You know, we're going to make our decision, you know, independent of Glass-Lewis and ISS. And I can give you an example, which kind of highlights our process. So uh, Tegna is a broadcasting company. We just went through a really long and drawn out proxy battle with a company called Standard General. I think these things are helpful. They highlight to management aspects of either the capital allocation or the operating structure that may, may be subpar or that may need work. In that way, they're helpful. We don't have this blanket sense of like, yes, we support activists or we support management. I mean, we're going to make a case-by-case decision, you know, what we think we should do. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to maximize the value of, you know, for, for our investors over a long period of time. It's not like, can you sell this company tomorrow for a 20% premium if it's getting more valuable every day? You know, and it could be worth a lot more in three or five years. That's not a good trade-off for us. We don't want someone to come in just looking for a quick buck. In general, it's a frustration for management. It takes an inordinate amount of their time. It entrenches them in some ways in the sense that you create this us versus them. And so even if the activist has some valid points, management becomes kind of defensive and they will dig their heels in and become entrenched on certain subjects where maybe they should be like slightly more open. But overall, if a good activist is shining light on certain things that management should be rethinking, then other shareholders can come in and say, hey, you know, we support you in general, but uh, we think the activist has a point on this matter. In Tegna's case, there were a number of issues that were brought up that were legitimate, and there were some that were maybe over, uh, and it was up to us to figure out which side to go with on that. But this is a very difficult environment for management to be dealing with activists. Conversely, when a company wins a proxy contest, is that potentially a bad sign for your engagement or investment theses? And does beating one activist relieve the pressure on management? That's a really interesting question. Tegna is a good example here. So we didn't invest in Tegna with the idea that it needed to change or needed to be sold. That, that's not our game. Our investors were suggestivists in that when a company we own does something, makes a capital allocation decision or a corporate governance change that we think needs to be addressed, we're going to comment on that. But we're not going into an investment specifically looking to make changes. I mean, so I think that's like a little bit of a nuance, a difference between activists and suggestivists. We're not looking for trouble. We are only commenting and reacting when trouble finds us or when something is concerning to us. But in Tegna's case, there were four credible parties that publicly expressed interest in buying the company. That's a pretty unique situation, right? The, the company had not put itself up for sale. And in the press, there were four different entities that expressed interest in buying the company. And that pressure, that event puts the onus on management to explain why the present value of the company's operating plan, that includes some appreciation that you know, things don't always go as planned, 
that plan has a you know is higher than what what value other people are willing to place on the company. In a sense, Standard General coming in and putting pressure on Tegna created a dialogue between Tegna and its largest shareholders, and it gave us the ability to, to to talk to management and say, this is a unique situation, not just because of COVID, but because of the interest in this company that's been publicly expressed. And it gave us an opening to really express our thoughts on how they should be considering that. So getting to your question, this is not necessarily specific to Tegna, but you know, let's just say a, a generic management team wins a proxy battle. I, I think this is what we want the management team to understand. First of all, don't assume that because you were able to fend off the activist, that the vote was an explicit expression of confidence in management. It's totally possible that they just didn't like the other shareholders, the other, the other slate, or they didn't like the activist, right? So it's not necessarily a vote of confidence. It's just like, we didn't like the other guy. Let's just think about it from a behavioral perspective. These, this group of people gets together, they come up with a plan, they probably engage with a lawyer, you know, with a reputable law firm to do a, an activist defense and they bunk, they hunker down, you know, they create a bunch of PowerPoints, you know, they all rally around the message. You know, if they win, there's a risk that they assume that that means that, yes, their plan, their capital allocation strategy, every, you know, the way they manage their balance sheet, all of those things were favorable in the eyes of shareholders. And I don't think that's the case. You know, in, in Tegna's case specifically, you know, we would hope that the company would be very, very thoughtful and open to the possibility of A, continuing as an independent company, or B, re-engaging with potential suitors once the COVID fog clears a little bit. So in general, assuming management wins, we are hoping that they still feel like shareholders are watching their capital allocation and their corporate governance really care- very carefully. And we're hoping that the management team will continue the dialogue with their shareholders. And it would be, I think, really concerning to us if the second the management team fended off the activists, that they weren't as interested in our, our opinions and our thoughts and they weren't, you know, they wouldn't respond to our letters. I mean, I, I'll give the Tegman people a lot of credit. They were very responsive. And we had a number of conversations with them about this. And so I think good companies learn a lot from their shareholders and learn, they basically get a survey of what their shareholders think about them in a way they would have never had otherwise. So that's why we think these things can be positive, aside from the fact that, you know, that the campaigns are time consuming. At the end of the day, you want a company to have just a little more, not necessarily feeling of a pressure, but an ongoing sense, you know, shareholders are watching and they'll be quick to step in if things don't go the way that, you know, management said they would as a result of the proxy campaign. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Ben. Thanks a lot for having me. Really appreciate the time. That's all for this episode of the Activist Insight podcast. Earlier this month, we released a podcast accompanying the May issue of Activist Insight Monthly. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to the magazine by emailing subscriptions at activistinsight.com. You can also subscribe to our magazine and Newswires for the most in-depth reporting on shareholder activism on the planet. Non-subscribers can still access special reports on shareholder activism in Japan the impact of COVID-19 on activism, and much, much more at activistinsight.com forward slash reports. For comments or questions about the podcast, or if you want something discussed on a future episode, please email press at activistinsight.com. Please as well do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Kieran Paul. Thank you for listening.